Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I know karate! A part of me wants to reply with the uh, Matrix reply of show me, but it wouldn't quite work for this film. No, no, and... Uh, the character who says this in this movie in question uh, very much cannot show that he knows karate. Yeah, uh, it doesn't end well for this chap, let's say that. Now, before we head on over to this week's review, Cam, this is the first time we've recorded since you went on your trip through Europe. How does it feel to be finally behind the microphone once again? Well, I guess it's technically the second. We did do a debrief episode for the Patreon, but this is the first main feed regular episode, and I'm very rusty, so I predict this will be a disaster. Absolutely, which, uh, to be fair, that's how we are every week. That's true. And the debrief was a total disaster. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, if you want to hear that total disaster of a debrief, uh, you can find that over on our Patreon page if you want to support the show. I know we have a little ad in the middle of the, the episode, but we've been told by people online to promote it more on the show. So if you want to help support Spy Hards, we're currently saving up to make a website for you all to visit and get all the latest information on spy movies. So you can go to patreon.com slash spyhards and we've got a few tiers over there and lots of bonus episodes, over 50 bonus episodes that you don't have access to here on the free tier. So join us over there. And if you can't do that, what we'd love you to do is leave us a five-star review. Wherever you're listening to this, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can, leave us a five-star review. Uh, It just helps us spread the word a little bit about Spy Hards and uh, helps us become the most known podcast in the world to cover Condor Man. That's right. Um, I think we might be the only one at this point, but uh, why not elevate ourselves that little bit more? Absolutely. But uh, without further ado, Cam, let's head on over to the review. So, Cam, finding a guest for this week's film was initially proving to be a tall order. I scrolled through Twitter until I had almost reached my vertical limit, but luckily we won't have to wait 124 hours for me to finish this pun, as the man to save us from this cliffhanger is here. He is the host of Behind the Stunts, and it's his second time on the show. It's Mr. John Orty. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. I'm but I was baffled for a moment with that, and then I realised where you were going with it, and I, now I'm okay. <laughs> I'm still baffled. Uh, oh, dear. It was, there was no holes barred there either. He was straight in, you know? But no, we're, we're good. We're fine, thank you. Good to be back, fellas. I, I, I love what you've done with the place. <laughs> we spruced it up. We added a, uh, a hoover in Cam's background as well, just to really set the scene. I know, that's, that's right. really set the whole household thing off. I like that enormously. Big open spaces too. It's like, you've, are you squatting? What's going on here? It's very difficult to tell on the screen what's going on. The vacuum really ties the whole room together, I like to think. Mm. Yeah, yeah it's, an, it's, a, it's a good look. I so, like yeah. it. It's why we yeah. stick to audio, I think. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, before we get to introducing the film this week, just throwing over to you, John, you know, what's been happening? Last time you were here, we were talking about the Bourne films, all five of them. We brought that series home. Uh, a lot mm. of stunts in there. And this week's film features quite a lot of stunts too. But you know, what's, what's new with you? What's been going on with Behind the Stunts? Well, we've got um, uh, we've still been plodding along and doing bits and pieces, but most importantly, and this is very over a very short space of time, we've suddenly reached ten thousand subscribers, which is 
fabulous. I mean, it really does mm-hmm. um, suddenly put into perspective how many people around the world are prepared to, you know, give a little bit of time and go, okay, I'll check this out and see what this is all about, and then come back, and then more importantly, comment, leaving comments and go, hey, I enjoyed that. That was great. I hadn't realized that when I saw the movie, or that's a great movie. I like that very much. Didn't know about this. That's interesting. Have you checked out this? And all of a sudden, I'm getting inquiries now from uh, from the subscribers to say, how about looking at this movie? How about looking at this? Do you remember this? And all that sort of stuff. And, and that's great. So it's uh, it's been quite monumental in, in, in doing that. I think we've been 10 years plodding away for 10 years. And then all of a sudden, you hit the big 10K and, and uh, you get a second wind of enthusiasm. Um, I had a little layoff uh, recently because I, I was having Wi-Fi replaced in one house and I was having Wi-Fi replaced in my father's house. So, uh, and that took much longer than anticipated. So I had a nice little break, which gave me an opportunity to plan ahead for what's coming. So yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's pretty good on that score. All good on the action front. Well, I'm curious, what kind of recommendations are people sending you that maybe you wouldn't have thought of? Well, there's, there's a great deal of horror going on, um, which, and it's, Bear in mind that a large proportion of the stuff that I cover is stuff that I am a fan of or I have been a fan of and it's been with me for a long period of time and therefore we go back and we recap. But there are people who, you know, are really keen on the action and they but they, they realise that it's from a, a horror or even thrash horror slash horror type perspective. And that's a new area to go into for me because I'm trying to focus without being distracted by you know, this stuff that's going, I'm not the biggest horror fan in the world, I must Mm. admit, but there's a lot of tie-ins, the Halloween pictures. I've been asked to have a look at those and there's some very interesting tie-ins there with a bunch of other pictures. Um, And um, uh, you know, the scream pictures and and movies of this nature, which I wouldn't have immediately thought that's the one for me. Let me go and chase this down. Exorcist. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd certainly had a look at and we'll be focusing on that because there's another one out recently. Uh, they've they've gone uh, a whole full circle with original cast members and everything, and now they've really thrown the thrown the kitchen sink at, at a another uh, instalment of the Exorcist pictures. So that's to have a look at as well. But I wouldn't it wouldn't have been my first choice. I must admit. I was going to say, like when you mentioned horror, I initially just immediately thought of the first Scream in particular, with the stunts being done, like the physical acting done by you know the person who's playing Ghostface. And it's yeah. very original, the way he's constantly scattering around and just falling down. It would be actually really interesting to talk to that person, I think. Yeah, it's, it was a, a, an interesting look at the way in which they were trying to do film and trying to change it from the from the, the, the type of um, scare shots that they'd had before. They wanted to do something different and then kind of, you know, moved into a sort of comedy-based thing as well, flying about. And so... But the action, the physicality of those individuals that you normally associate with Leatherface, for instance, or, you know, Michael Myers. So, um, this was a very different character in that respect. And so it is interesting to look at it and, and to see how it was done and how it was, how the training went ahead for all of that. So, yeah, something to look forward to for the future because it is a different direction for me, certainly. It's, it's always an interesting thing when you're running a channel or, or a podcast or anything like that where, you know, you you could 
schedule your your content using those air quotes to be current so you could do you know halloween films around halloween spooky scary films to do that because it could get more engagement that sort of stuff but on the flip side you want to keep it to things that you're interested in so like i'm i'm with you john i do not much care for horror films so i know barely anything about them whereas cam is a huge fan of them yeah if cam was to say to me let's do horror spy movies this whole month i I don't. Well, I don't think there are any. Not but many. I don't know if I'd be up for it particularly. <laughs> I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the Goldfoot films are pretty horrible, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> True. Yeah. Like there's there's like one universal horror movie that would apply, but it's not easily like streamable for people. So that one's sitting on the back burner until that's finally uh, changed. Uh, that's also. I mean, from a podcasting point of view. Uh, it's you know I could uh, I could be thrown any uh, particular movie from any particular genre from any particular year even brand new and current I tend to draw the line at stuff that's just come out of the cinema uh, because there's there isn't always the the um, the push from an audience to go and see it and certainly my listeners are often likely to see it either from a DVD release or Blu-ray or even a TV showing, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I tend to stick away from or take away from I- immediate releases. Having said that, I and mean, we did equalize a failure recently on the basis that the third picture just came out, although I didn't focus on the third picture. It was based around the action based on Denzel's approach towards the character. He'd done a lot of boxing, so his physicality in that role. Um, and looking at the the stunt coordinators and, and the, uh, the fighter rangers, because the 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 uh, the action shots the way it's shot itself is remarkable um if you've if you've seen those first two pictures and if you haven't seen the third one i do urge you to do so because it's just as dramatic it really is very very exciting to watch um but uh, from the youtube point of view then if you look at it from a different point of view that's a whole different ball game because there are certain studios that and certain um uh, organizations that I just don't have any issue with, you know, I can find footage. I can find B-roll footage. I can find parts of the trailer and, and, and stuff that they've let go and released. And I can utilize that as part of, of the, um, the educational purpose of, of the, of the video. And there are other movies that I just won't get 10 feet. I'll get blocked immediately on the basis of not being able to use this regardless of what it's for. So uh, I think there's, um, there's, there's a great, two different balls games to, to, to this whole thing. Yes, the up-to-minute content would is great, and if I'm able to do as much of it, then I'll try and do it more on the podcast than I would on the YouTube show. Um, but there's a great deal that I would like to cover on the YouTube show that I'm simply not able to do at this at this point. I'm sure there will come a time, but, uh, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky minefield. But once you get through it, you know, the, it's, it's able to, to cover as much as you possibly can, whatever genre. Well, John, we've brought you here for your speciality in stunts, for your speciality in action. And so, Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What are we talking about this week? Yes, we are tackling the 1975 spy thriller, The Iger Sanction, starring and directed by Clint Eastwood. Yes, the mountain puns are solidifying now. They may make sense <laughs> to the listeners. Congratulations or commiserations uh-huh. for listening to it. Either way, either way. These hills are alive with the sound of Eastwood. Like, they uh... screaming. <laughs> I think it was... Certain cases, mm, yes. Quite so. Well, it, 
I think, you know, Cam and I have spoken about Clint. I think it'll be the first question I've got for you, John. We, we've spoken about Clint many times on the show. We've done Firefox, a couple of other bits where he's been on. But we never had you on to speak about Clint Eastwood. So just from your experience and Clint Eastwood's films, you know, what do you tend to gravitate towards? What is your experience of Clint and what do you think of his films? Um, I'm a fan of Clint f- films. I, I'm, uh, I'm a fan of him as a lead man. And I think with and probably a great many of my generation, it was Dirty Harry movies that probably got me into into Clint in a big way. Although I was really very keen on him as Philo Bedo, I must admit, in the Any, Any Which Way movies. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when your sidekick's uh, an orangutan and punches just as well as you do, you know, that's not bad for start-off. And, and his physicality has always been a major factor. He's the big, tall dude that the camera suddenly comes up to. Uh, you know, there's an there's an issue happening over here, and then the camera pans up, and never mind. Here's Clint, and it'll all be fine in a moment. You know, he's got that prowess, and he's done that right the way through his career, from his television days, um, right the way through to him taking over directing. You know, because he was like Don Siegel's love child. I think at one point there was they were doing lots of work together, either directing or working together and writing together. Mm-hmm. And then you know from that period from the spaghetti westerns which then turned him into a different animal completely and all of a sudden adored all over the world he then had to do what a lot of actors have to do which is to get out of that whole thing of i'm not just the cowboy you know there's other strings to my bow and and that's what he was prepared to do although he's always kept the west in in his back pocket because there's so many great stories and as a director he really knows how to work a movie um, you know, Unforgiven is another great example of a, of a, of a Western that um, probably couldn't have been done when he was starring in those spaghetti Westerns, a very different type of movie completely. Um, but yes, always been a fan of Clint. Um, his physicality means that he's, as the leading man, he's always very physical, either as throwing punches, which he's excellent. You, you, if you watch any of the movies that involves him in sort of close quarter combat, um, there is a lot of very reassuring stuff because he, again, used to train doing boxing, so his feet are very handy, moves his feet very quickly, moves uh, moves his hands very quickly, has a huge right hook, and knows how to sell it as well. Probably watching, you know, John Wayne pictures and 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 that type of stuff, and again seeing, look, that's the Duke throwing that punch that starts way back here and comes right through the frame and disappears the other way. It's very impressive to watch. Um, and, you know, he's he's good with a quip. And uh, I think with the, the Dirty Harry pictures, that certainly sold that to the rest of the world. So, yep, I'm an Eastwood fan, no doubt about that. There are a few, like, movie stars of that era who understand their strengths more than Clint Eastwood. Because he mm. doesn't have, like, the range of, like, say, you know, a Jack Nicholson, who he's who's also very prominent in that era, but yeah. it's like someone who knows exactly how to work on screen. He doesn't go too far outside of his comfort zone, but he is able to kind of adapt that persona to all these different types of movies. I mean, somewhat like a Tom Cruise, although Tom Cruise will take a little bit of a riskier, <laughs> riskier business, but riskier um, acting opportunities to do something like Eyes Wide Shut. Whereas like Clint is someone who's very much, I mean, he is kind of following in that John Wayne mold, but also kind of um, evolving it. Like, he's faster. He's more intense. Um, there is more of a willingness to sometimes appear more broken on screen than a John Wayne would. 
but it's just he's so locked in every time you see him like there's never a movie where i watch clint eastwood and i go boy he was terrible in this yeah yeah that's very true that's fair that's that's a that's a very good point you've never gone in I, I, touching on what you were saying earlier limitations i know we uh, there's a great line from one of the movies where man's got to know his limitations right? <laughs> so yeah he knows this but as an actor he knows that he doesn't want to go too far outside of that area because it then becomes unbelievable now certain other actors will just push that boundary they will go well yeah it's fine i'll be great and maybe nowadays with cgi and the possibilities are endless but when he was making those big pictures that did take a you know that's a they're very physical and they're very in camera and you know when burt reynolds was doing this type of stuff and and uh and the bridges boys were doing something else and and uh those type of other heroes were maybe doing something and they were outside of their comfort zone they didn't make those type of movies again after that they went back to doing what they normally do clint doesn't go that far you know, he realizes from not only from an acting point of view, from a directing point of view, uh, and also understanding himself. I can't do that, you know, or that character wouldn't do that. And I'm not the right. If the, if you want somebody to play that character and do that, then I'm not the right actor for that role. He's always very insistent on that, as opposed to those people who just dive in and go, "Yep, whatever you're paying me, how much? Super. Just give it. I'll say the lines." Point me in the right direction, and I'll go and deliver. You know, so yeah, he's a he's a class act. Like even when you see him in something like Bridges of Madison County, which is like probably maybe the most different from something like the Iger mm -hmm. Sanction, but you can yeah. still see that Clint persona that's just kind of like a little more gentle. Like he makes it just a little more vulnerable, but he's not trying to kind of he's not a chameleon, and he's not trying to be. No, no, uh, and and takes on. Uh, 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 Many roles, a, a, a Billion Dollar Baby is another very good example of him as, uh, you know, being very forceful as the character, but understanding what's going on, you mm -hmm. know, and wanting and willing and doing everything that the audience is doing. By the end of that, you are willing that uh, that character on to do the best that she can in the ring, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and he certainly delivers on that. So the, the very, the, the, I don't think that you are what are we now 2023 i don't think you're gonna there, there isn't an actor that does what eastwood does i don't think at the moment maybe maybe further down the line somebody who is currently in the early days of their career may further down the line come and step up and and and, and people will associate certain performances with this individual but at the moment i think he's absolutely on his own you're not going to find anybody um I don't think that that would be as as powerful with a presence as, as and longevity like he has at the moment. It's kind of bonkers, really. It's one of my notes I was going to bring up later, but it's sort of the perfect time, really. Mm. You, you look at the sort of the fallibility of him in this film, but also other roles I've seen Clint Eastwood play. Like he is, he's, he's a gritty. He gets down and dirty. He gets his hands yeah. on. And you look at current action stars now. I think Dwayne Johnson is the man who always pops to my head. You watch him in something like Black Adam. He's not allowed to look bad or silly or goofy at any point. He has to be pristine. Yeah. And there's something about that that I, I think makes him feel not human in a sense. Like it, it, you can't give yourself over to that character. You can't understand where they're coming from if they're completely without reproach, if they're completely alien. Whereas, you know, Clint, you know, he, he climbed 
He did all the stunts in this film we're going to talk about. He learned to climb and he got his hands dirty and he got his face bloody and he got down to it. I would never think that The Rock would do that. No. Despite the pun. Well, well no. Uh, and, and I think that the um, contractual obligations now are very different to, to when they... Um, the Rock, Dwayne, is uh, doubled by his uh, cousin, in point of fact, um, uh, Tanawi Reed, and whatever Dwayne does, Tanawi does, right? So they are joined at the hip as far as that's concerned. If there's any action that is to be taking place that is outside of the remit of Dwayne doing, and something that he probably doesn't need to do anyway, but it's going to be done by the double. Um, Eastwood is a very different character. A large proportion of his career has been on horseback on film, uh, rides very well. You would think so after 87 million Westerns, right? I mean, he's very, very prominent as far as that's concerned. Um, But fights, you know, you you couldn't touch him with a barge pole. He is very, very good. And um, the the fact that um, his uh, stuntman, uh, Buddy Van Horn, uh, who has been his double for many, many years, and the stunt coordinator on this picture as well, um, is really the only person to have been able to double him successfully. You see mm-hmm. other people doubling people from time to time. Eastwood's been doubled by a number of people in the past, but Buddy Van Horn is certainly the tick in that box to go, yep, that's that's Clint's double. You know, there's no two ways about that. But even then, on a picture like this, um, Buddy Van Horn would have said, look, you know, I've got I've got capabilities. Um, I'm very good in this area, this area, and this area. Mountain climbing, well, you know, that's not my bag. And that's really <laughs> why those professionals were brought in to do the job. So um, there is, there's a great deal of that to be, to be taken into consideration, I think, as far as this is concerned. And, yeah, you list the things that Clint can do, like action, acting. And so he, of course, is the man you cast as an art teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Let's make it all very simple. Yes, that's right. Yeah, let's let let's mosey on over if we're going to use a Western pun here to the synopsis for the Iger Sanction for those who have never seen the film or have never heard of the story. The Iger Sanction, his lifeline held by the assassin he hunted. A classical art professor and collector who doubles as a professional assassin is coerced out of retirement to avenge the murder of an old friend. Yep. Uh, I just want to give uh, Clint props, though, for beating Harrison Ford to the punch to play the sexy professor before Indiana Jones rolled around. <laughs> yeah. I was waiting for the love you eyelids or whatever she writes on it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I did, uh, when I saw that in the film, I was like, oh, they really are doing this. And I realized that, you know, Indiana Jones comes away after this film. Mm-hmm. It does many years later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. But that, um, but yeah, so that's... That's Clint Eastwood in this film, but I'll throw it out to you, gents, because I've never seen this film before. Uh, John, as the guest, you're up first. Had you seen the Iger Sanction before we called you in for the special mission? Yeah, many years ago, um, I would say it was probably the mid '80s, and I'm suspecting that it was more. It was probably on TV, I guess. Um, I don't remember there being any adverts. So I'm assuming it was a BBC channel, um, and. I've always liked it. I must admit, I I, I like the character. Um, I like his look um, that he has in the picture. Um, 
and uh, for me, I think one of the great characters in the picture is George Kennedy. I've always liked George Kennedy as an actor, regardless of what he's in. Uh, he gets on the screen and you go, oh, okay, it's George Kennedy. All right. And you kind of settle into the whole thing because you know he's going to throw the kitchen sink at whatever he's doing. And he does that, really, really does that in this movie. Um, and there are a couple of, you know, interesting characters along the way. Um the uh, um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. But the uh, the uh, the 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 other assassin um, who was at the uh, at the boot camp, who uh, I'm sure he's been in practically every other episode of Columbo. I'm, I'm pretty much certain of that. Uh, but uh, they're very good characters as well. And the movie does it does move along relatively quickly. You know, they're here and they're all of a sudden there, and then the next thing they're doing this. So it, it speeds along and the little jump cuts here and there and you never know what's going on and uh even when it does become clear further down the line you're still not entirely certain you know you've got your own self-doubts but uh yeah I've, i'd always enjoyed it i also like um uh like the score mm. um i think the score is very good indeed um but um and of course you know john williams outside of his uh, um outside of his spielberg uh, connection john williams never heard of him yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Tricky. Uh, he's the guy who is he's promoted by uh, by roll neck sweaters. He's not allowed to do any publicity unless he's wearing a roll neck sweater. You probably seen him. I think he scored Jaws two, <laughs> very possibly. Yeah. Uh, from from his uh, uh, Malibu penthouse, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's uh, there's lots of great stuff to like in this, um, and it's good. You know, just let it wash over you. It's great fun. Well, Cam, what about you? Had you climbed this mountain before? No, this is one of the Clint's that I hadn't seen. And I have like a Clint Eastwood box set and this is not contained within it. So uh, it was one that was kind of on my outstanding list. Okay. All right. So I, I guess that makes John our expert on two counts then. The man who has seen mm. this at least more than once and the stuntman. So yeah. Okay. Who knew? A lot, lot, of, lot of pressure on you here, John. A lot of pressure on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, just a standard pressure thing mm. going on. Don't worry about it. We'll, okay. we'll get through it. Well, Let's carry on as you were. Righto. Uh, well, Cam, I'll throw it over to you as I do keep you locked in a room most of the time to keep you away from sunlight <laughs> as well. Sure. Uh, that's yeah. mostly for editing's sake, but... Could you take us through the journey and get us up this hill? Well, it's funny we were mentioning, you know, John Williams and a Jaws connection. This was also the same year, of course, that he scored Jaws. Uh, so big year for John Williams. But um, the producers of Jaws, David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck, were actually responsible for bringing this movie to the screen, Iger Sanction. They um, secured the rights to the 1972 novel, same name, The Iger Sanction, uh, and it was written by Trevanian who that was the uh, alter ego name for Rod Whitaker, who was a New York uh, writer and film scholar who worked at the University of Texas. And this was his only like screenwriting effort he ever did. He had a few things adapted, but this was the only time he actually wrote on a movie. Um, but he had um, basically this kind of like career where he would write novels under fake names. And Trevanian was kind of like the primary one. But he had other ones he had, like uh, Nicholas Sear, Bennett Lakego, and Edward Moran. And um, <laughs> really just going for it on those pseudonyms, isn't he? He's like, I, I, if you're going to have a pseudonym, you, you might as well make it exotic, I suppose. Yeah, they're all like spelt kind of unusually. Um, so they do stand out. And his identity was actually a secret until 1984 when his publisher accidentally leaked it. 
Oh man, what a spoil sport! Yeah, no, no longer became the publisher after that, presumably. <laughs> he got the boot exactly, and and so Iger Sanction was actually the first of two Hemlock spy novels he wrote. The other one was called The Lou Sanction, and involved whoa, Hemlock. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Go back. It's the... no, no. Let me finish. <laughs> it involved Hemlock going to London. Right, as in Waterloo, or or like Lou in Cornwall, which is L O O E. L O O. Okay. Oh, it is right. Oh, right. <clears throat> yeah. Down the path. Yeah, right. That's uh, some toilet humor for us all there. And so, if <laughs> you sit there and go, "Wait a second, like that sounds kind of comedic," uh, and like I, I just watched the Iger Sanction, it didn't seem like too much of a comedy. So the novels that Trevanian was writing were basically written to be spoofs of Ian Fleming James Bond novels. So. I would say that maybe there was a tonal shift when it came to adapting the Iger Sanction for the screen. <laughs> well, I, I, that's something I'm probably going to get into a bit later when it comes to tonal shifts in this film. But uh, okay, so it's nice to know that it starts at the author and it works its way into the film. Yeah, and so the, the author, Trevanian, is writing a draft of the screenplay for this film. They also bring in a writer, Hal Dresner, who is a writer-producer, did some uncredited work on Cool Hand Luke with George Kennedy in 67. But his first major movie was 1969's The Extraordinary Seaman, starring David Niven. Scott giggles. And um, <laughs> that movie was apparently like just a complete disaster, but he did continue to work. And uh, that, uh, that movie was a real loose sanction. <laughs> the Iger sanction was actually his follow-up to the 1973 horror film S- are we just making funny noises today? <laughs> it was just... What is this? It was a series of S's, and it was a snake horror movie. <laughs> oh, well. Say no more. <laughs> Don't you mean say no more? Slither. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen... It's actually pretty fun. <laughs> I, I should I should have done the spy hards at the intro. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so Dresner did not have, like, a huge career. His final credit was 1981's Zorro the Gay Blade with George Hamilton. Uh, So he, you know, that film's like kind of a campy spoof of Zorro. And so, like, maybe that's kind of where some of the goofier elements come into this movie. I don't really know. But uh, they basically had Dresner and Trevanian writing drafts of this. And they announced Paul Newman would be the star of this film. And Newman, after reading a couple drafts, uh, basically implemented his right of scripted approval and got out of Dodge. It was like, I'm not digging this. See you later. <laughs> Smart cookie, uh, Paul Newman. Yeah. Not enough boiled <laughs> eggs for him. Hmm. Yes. He was like, I'll have to do the sting instead. Yeah. Oh, what, what a choice. <laughs> oh, well. What a choice. Yeah. So the project basically went to limbo and then Clint was signed to star and produce and then they later announced direct. And uh, Richard Zanuck... <laughs> said that Clint was always the first choice, but previously had conflicting schedule issues. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Maybe that's a shot at Paul Newman. Could Mm. be. That feels like a little bit of an ego brushing there as well. Yeah, I think so too. Mm. And so Clint had moved into directing in 1971 with the movie Play Misty for Me, uh, which is a very good kind of like early precursor to like um, Fatal Attraction, that kind of film. Very good movie. And this was his follow-up to the movie Breezy, which was a drama he'd done with William Holden that just 
did not perform well. I've never really heard of Breezy. It does not have much of a legacy whatsoever. But Clint was not particularly happy with the way that um, Breezy and Play Misty for Me had been released by the studios he was working with at Universal. And so he was actually quite unhappy with the book, The Iger Sanction, and the screenwriting efforts thus far. And basically just saw this movie as a means of fulfilling his contract and getting out and going to work for Warner Brothers, where ultimately he would work until this very day. So firstly, you're saying Breezy didn't blow anyone away. No, it did not. No, it did not. I think Is you. there a clause in this contract that says that every single link has to have a pun? <laughs> What's going on here? I, I don't know. I'm just feeling puns today. Good I, Lord. I, I should calm down. I should. I've been. I've been challenged. I'll calm Could down. Could you uh, just for a second? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so, um, Clint brought in another screenwriter, William B. Murphy. This was his debut screenwriting effort, so he must have done punch up work and uncredited efforts. Um. He does not have a big filmography. Uh, he had a story credit on Lethal Weapon 2 in the late 80s. But he would launch his own novel series called The Destroyer. That's right. This man was the creator of Remo Williams. Ah, super. There we go. No now we're way. That's a spy connection <laughs> I love to hear. Mm-hmm. That's right. Wow. That's a that's a weird world, isn't it? And those are there's been like a hundred of those books. Yeah. And apparently Murphy never read the Iger Sanction book or anything and uh, just kind of like found the tone they wound up with. <laughs> well, what tone was it? I don't know. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, <laughs> and Clint Eastwood basically went into this production thinking like, okay, I'm not particularly confident in this story, but I think that the climbing footage, if it's extraordinary enough, will cover up for that. Like, I think audiences will enjoy this movie if I can deliver on that front. They'll forgive me if... Uh, perhaps the uh, the narrative isn't quite up to snuff. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And yeah. Yeah. And so because of that, Clint um, partly insisted on doing his own stunts. He trained with mountaineer Mike Hoover in Yosemite National Park and climbed the 1,200-foot uh, Lost Arrow Spire. So Clint took this very seriously. He was Tom Cruise before Tom Cruise was scaling mountains in Mission Impossible 2. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's actually a question I had for John. I know you mentioned that Clint had a stunt double, and I imagine there were certain mm. situations where they had to use a stunt double in his previous films. But is yeah. this quite like Clint at this point to be doing his own stunts most of the time? Not really. I mean, within, within certain reasons, um, there were moments on um, Magnum Force. He'd done a lot of motorcycle riding, um, but there were certain aspects of that that, required a double because of the nature of the job um and similarly here george orison um doubles him for some of that um climb the footage you see of the needle that you're referring to simply on the basis that you know clint's directing so he needs to have a perspective of that can't rely solely on uh, the assistant director to get the shots that he's looking for or the uh, or, or the dp so consequently uh, George Orison was doing a, a doubling there, um, and uh, George Kennedy was doubled as well, so they could get those accurate shots. Uh, and particularly working out the final piece of that shot, if you remember, which is the two of them sat on top um, of of this um, this uh, you know the rock, this spire, and uh, George Kennedy 
pulls out some beers and he says, Eastwood says, you didn't bring beers up here. He said, no, I'm not stupid. You did because they were in his backpack. <laughs> yeah. And they're sat on top of this thing and the helicopter, it's a helicopter shot as it pans away. And you can't see the shadow. The shadow's missing completely. There's no, it's beautifully worked out. It has to be done at a certain time that the shadows are in the right place. And therefore that quantity of shadow and coverage will cover the movement of the helicopter. All right, there's downdraft left, right and center. You can't change that. It's 1975. But what you can do, if you're clever enough and you work out the time and everything, you can physically uh, 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 cover that movement of the helicopter, and, and and it doesn't appear. There's no there's no sign of it in any of the of the shadows. But it's a very very clever shot indeed. It must have taken a huge amount of time to pinpoint. That's when we need to do this, right? You need to get up there. 10 15 minutes beforehand let's get the shot done and then we're done for the day you know so yeah it's some m remarkable stuff going on but leading up to that he wasn't really the sort of character that would go i'll do this mm -hmm. it's okay i'll do this because buddy van horn wouldn't have let him do it anyway there's a moment there's a moment again i, I go back to magnum force because it's a very good example of, of clint being right there in the thick of things in camera and there's a moment when he's on the bonnet of a speeding vehicle, which is rushing towards camera. It's not him. It's Buddy Van Horn. That's how good the doubling is on that picture. You know, mm -hmm. for many years, people have gone, look at Clint doing that. It's not him. It's Buddy Van Horn. But it's beautifully shot. And then the dismount, which, you know, the car breaks and he disappears off into some boxes over the far side. So it's very nicely done. But he's not really the sort of character that would put his hand up and go, it's OK, I'll have a go at this. The reason that he did a great deal of of the of the stuff on this particular movie uh, is based on on um, the accident that happened up the mountain, and consequently that that changed a great deal of things. Yeah, so you cue me up there. So they started the production shooting in Switzerland at the Eiger North Face, uh, which was considered one of the most dangerous climbs in the world. It had many fatalities there, and on the second day of filming, there was a rock slide that killed British rigger uh, David Knowles and injured Mike Hoover, sent him to the hospital. And uh, so, yes, like, this was a very dangerous shoot. And, um, yes, Clint, as John is saying, you know, basically had to do a number of uh, the stunts himself. And I guess, like, you know, the tragedy is obviously something that you never want to happen on a film set. But when you see the finished film, seeing Clint in those situations, it does have an authenticity. It it does. I I also don't think for a moment it was simply on the basis of you know we've we've lost somebody we need to replace that somebody I'll do it. Mm. I, I don't I don't think for a moment it was that. That's Clint, uh, and there was a bit of falling out going on because Clint had demanded that these shots be done. You know, leading up to the rock climb, leading up to the death of the individual concerned. So there are a number of things that Clint uh, was was being held responsible for. Um, and he wanted to put it right. You know, he wanted to try and get across to, to the rest of the crew and to the everybody at home who had some sort of backing in this and, and some sort of content in it that it, I need to be, the, the character needs to be seen to be doing as much as everybody else. Um, I, I, as the director, actor, have been relying on these individuals to do as much for me as possible uh, but this terrible tragedy has happened and I need to put that right. I need to be in a situation where we can get to that point, get the story across and get the character and me on screen uh, 
enough to go that's really him doing that and, and i think that was more along the lines of that it wasn't just a case of of replacing it but um there, there was a lot of falling out that had happened within the production um and he, he did you know he did do whatever he needed to do to try and get it right and it did make a big difference certainly seeing him up there and there are shots there which clearly you know they're not on a back lot in Burbank, they are very clearly, you know, up the up the side of a mountain. So, with that in mind, I think it was a very important decision, and one that um, probably only a director could make. Well, I read, uh, I read, and I don't know if this is necessarily true. People can correct us online if if it isn't. But it's from IMDb and, and a documentary I watched on YouTube. But the shot of the rocks falling down that injures one of the climbers is the shot that also caused the death. Mm. Yeah, because there wasn't any. There was footage of everybody moving, traversing from one side of the rock to the other, but there wasn't any footage uh, of uh, the the position they were in, looking up. And on the strength of that, one of the camera guys, uh, and they were very pleased with the footage they got during the day. But they said, "Clint, we've got no vertical shots at all here. We need to go back and create something because we're going to lose the light, and we don't have this." part of this location for much longer we've got to move around consequently that he said right okay well let's get this done and a lot of people were ready to go they were done and he said no we need to get this done can we come back and that's where the, a lot of the confusion had had gone from because he's gone from being the actor who understands right we've got this shot done and we've got that shot done he's now got his director's hat on and on the strength of that now needs to work it in a very different perspective and get other people into this and get it done because it's my fault. I've missed it. Mm. I should have done it. I haven't, I haven't worked it into the, to the schedule. And uh, so let's do it now. And on the strength of that, that's when the accident happened and the, and the rock fall that you see in the final edit is um, part of that rock fall that, that sadly claimed, uh, claimed one of the climbers and riggers. So um, yeah, there's, there's a great deal going on there. And, and, um, uh, you know as a as a director you learn you learn from one project to the next you rely on lots of uh, lots of people who are much better in certain situations than you are I, i'm reminded of a, a wonderful fr a phrase that um uh, ringo Starr once quoted which was uh um make sure that and this is advice he gave to his son zach was make sure you play with as many people as you possibly can and make sure they're all better than you are. Hmm. And that's very, very similar to what Clint had to be in a situation for. He's working with some of the best filmmakers in the world, but he wants to make absolutely certain that they're so much better than him. He, he doesn't understand X, Y, and Z. That's what they're for. He can learn from them. And so next time when th there's a, a particularly difficult shot or something that's required, he can go, ah, I remember when I was working with so-and-so, he said, right, we'll do this. And you get the shot better, you know. So I, I think, um, from a director's point of view, he's had to make a number of very serious decisions along the line. One of them has sadly caused uh, caused a, an accident and a death, um, but uh, the the final result has has worked certainly. Mm -hmm. And I just had a little um, addendum just to the making of, which I I normally wouldn't bring up something this obscure, but because of the spy connection, I noted it. There was a memorandum found. Um, in the production files, and this was posted on um, the American Film Institute, that the character of Felicity had been eliminated, eliminated from the picture. And the character of Felicity would have been played by Claudine Auger from Thunderball. Oh, okay. 
Oh, yeah, right. I that was interesting. Did, did she shoot the scene or? Don't know. Don't know. She would have been cast, but I think it may have been a cut before they even shot the movie. But uh, yeah, we could have had a Bond connection here. That would have been an interesting. And I've not really seen Claudine in much other than uh, Thunderbolt. Yeah, I think. And as, as, uh, oh, yes. No, you're right. I always get her mixed up with... Um, Luciano Lucci? Claudia Cardinelli. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, we'll tackle uh, the wow. movie Triple Cross on the show at some point. She's in that, but... Uh, She's in that, yeah. yeah. She's also an Escape to Athena, one of my favorites. Okay. And so this movie had a budget of $9 million. Domestically, it did $14.2 million. So it was a modest hit. Ticking the box. Um, That's a profit. Inter- yep. International numbers are lost to the sands of time. I have no idea. Um, the top three for the year. Number one was Jaws. Number two was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And number three was Shampoo, the Warren Beatty film. And just a final note, um, author Turvanian also wrote a book called Shibumi. And it was recently announced that Shibumi would be directed by Chad Stahelski ah. and adapted by Matthew Orton, who appeared on this show. Wow. And he wrote uh, Operation Finale. Okay. So another action stunt connection in some shape or form there with Chad at the helm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that, that's, again, Buddy Van Horn, a very good example of, of, a, of a, a stunt performer working very closely with Clint understanding direction because of the amount of stuff that he's done with Clint moves on to doing not only stunt coordination work, but second unit work. And in fact, entire units are get right. Take that unit, go and film. And he does exactly what you would expect a director of first unit to do, you know? So he's um, uh, uh, described himself many years ago as a great sponge. Mm. Just, I'll just absorb all of the stuff that's around me. I'll take on all of that stuff that this guy's giving out and that Clint's giving out and that all these other, and I'll, I'll take it all on board. And then I'll be able to go to those dark point, the, the little filing system that he has in his mind and go, ah, yes, I know what to do here because I remember so-and-so doing it and then goes off and does it. So, um, yeah, that's, they make very good directors, mm-hmm. stunt performers, um, because they're always editing. They're editing in their head. And they're working out that's a better shot, and I could do this here and there. So yeah, no, Chad's uh, Chad's an extraordinary example of, of of what can be done when you let somebody loose who really knows his way around an action sequence. Definitely. Well then, I think it's time we head off to Dragon to get our next sanction mission. Let's talk about the Iger sanction in twenty twenty three. John, you're our guest. You've come on the show. You obviously you saw it back in the eighties. You're revisiting it now. What do you think of the film? You know, with your current sensibilities, with your current experience, with your level of knowledge on stunts now, what is how does this film feel for you? Um, I remember it as being uh, slightly more action-packed than it was. And then I, I then looked at it again relatively recently. I'd seen it a couple of times before, but I, I watched it again recently in connection with, uh, with this podcast. And uh, realized that the work that's happening on it, I think one of the, apart from the, the mountaineering sequences themselves, um, the fight sequence um, uh, in the, uh, you know, he's, he's gone to deliver, um, he's gone to deliver the, um, whatever it was he was trying to deliver, and then uh, climbs, the, climbs the drain pipe, right? So all of that, the very right. clever sequence. The first um, sanction. The first sanction, yes. And he is doing the climbing. There's no doubt about that. Um, he's also really climbing 
a drain pipe. I don't know whether anybody's ever tried to climb a drain pipe. It's not simple, you know. Um, and ideally, if you're going to climb a drain pipe, I've come down one or two in the past, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> but climbing them, um, you, it's often easier if you're of smaller frame. Now, uh, the history books will say of, of the you know, cat burglars and all of this sort of stuff. They're referred to as cat burglars because they were, you know, very stealthy and, and quite small in frame. You know, you, if you're able to shimmy your way very, very easily up, uh, up a drain pipe, well, there's possibility that you'll move on in your career as a burglar. Nobody sees you go in, you blend in. Um, Clint's huge, right? Yeah. He's what, six something. And um, he's got proper boots on, I think, by the looks of things. There's, there's no trainers on this and he's climbing his way up the, and, whether that was reinforced or not for the shot, I don't know. But he makes a very good job of it. And three cameras covering it, one from one side, one the other, and then one at the top watching him come up. Um, so they were really selling the whole point of, look, there's the star climbing this drain pipe. And look, that shot over the top that goes, bloody hell, that's quite high. You know, you wouldn't want to do that, would you? So, again, putting Clint in a slightly different perspective. But the fight in the room afterwards is really quite clever but very brief mm -hmm. and uh, uh it reminded me very much of the um uh the circus you know the guy's trying to fend off a knife with a chair that he's got in his hand you know so try the lion coming towards him and he's showing this chair at him but uh um my my memory of that is the is the lovely shot of him leaving the window when the guy gets pushed out through the window and so just a lovely lovely shot initially in slow-mo there's six edits on the way down which means he's really trying to sell the whole fall and distance and cutting back from one shot to the other and then there's a lovely cutaway false perspective thing at the bottom there's he falls out of the window this is all in harvey incidentally who's the stuntman who falls out of the window. Uh, ironically, the guy who uh, doubled Sean Gonnery jumping from the um, uh, the oil rig in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, okay. Um, so the same guy. But uh, has uh, does the fall, turns for the fall, and then, so I suspect there's, a, there's an edit of him jumping from the roof maybe 10, 12 feet out of camera shot, and then a separate cut of him jumping and landing flat into the coverall, this sort of uh, over the top of the little table, there's a couple outside having coffee and he comes and, and, and falls to the top of the parapet. And it looks very much as though um, it's been done in a sort of, um, it's slightly closer to the camera. So it gives the impression he's gone all the way through it. When in point of fact, I think he's only just gone through part of it and, and part of it is still there in one piece afterwards. So it's a very clever shot. Uh, but landing and flat backing on on this uh, on the ground there, um, but it's a, it's a nice little shot, and I, I I remember that quite vividly as being um, something that stuck with me quite a lot when I saw it at first. And I kept thinking about that over and over again because it's uh, it's a very clever little way of being able to change the way of oh some bloke falling out of a building, you know, right. he's going to fall off the roof into something. Yeah, well, let's do it slightly different. It's been very cleverly worked through, um, but there's a there's a there aren't many moments like that in the in the picture, even though you know it has a stunt team of seven or eight people on it. A majority of those are uh, they're not con they're they're also not considered professional climbers, by the way. That's seven or eight stunt p performers who would have been there probably doubling. Again, you're looking at the basis that Clint is directing here, so he needs to have mm. 
you know, another double here. He needs to have a long shot double for this and a long shot double for that because there's going to be helicopters taking off and panning back. So you still need to have the individual in frame. You're not going to get the actor doing that. So, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of little moments in the picture that uh, that I like enormously, but that that's certainly one that, that, that springs to mind. It's an interesting one because I, I, that scene jumped out at me a lot for its parallels with uh, the Bourne identity. Right. Mm. Um, you, you've got, you know, Jason Bourne leaving the uh, embassy and he's climbing down the building, whereas Clint's climbing up the building. You've yep. got the sort of hand to hand fight with the push dagger. Um, and that, but like how that shot in this film is very different. Oh, actually, that film, the, the way that the fight is shot reminded me a lot of Three Days of the Condor with the postman. Yeah, where it's very messy. It's like, intentionally so. It's messy and like it's shot weird. So you don't see everything. There's not a lot of coverage no, of the exactly. fight. It suggests a fight more than it shows a fight, which can sometimes be actually far more vicious. There's that shot underneath the table. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, and so there's part of that and then he disappears under the table and rushes past the camera and then you just see the legs of the guy on the other side. Yeah, there's a couple of very interesting shots and I, I wonder if um, that had been initially worked out in storyboard or whether they'd said let's there was probably a two shot there and i imagine he's thought no we'll do it differently let's come down here get it from a low perspective and then come back to a different angle for the edit but uh yeah no very cleverly worked out uh well cam i'll, I'll throw it over to you what do you think of the eiger sanction i was disappointed in the eiger sanction um my main takeaway was why didn't clint just make a mountain climbing movie I think that probably would have been uh, more effective because that's clearly where his heart was. When I'm watching all the climbing footage at the end, I'm like, this stuff looks beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's interesting to me that there's almost like a Firefox situation going on here where it's like Clint makes these spy movies where the first half really doesn't lead that much into the second half. The second <laughs> half becomes an entirely different type of movie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The thing about Firefox is I think it has a pretty direct through line that carries you through the two halves. So like, while I found the first half of Firefox maybe a little slow, when it's overall said and done, I can go, okay, I understand what the story of Firefox is. Iger Sanction, at a certain point, I paused the movie because I'm like, what the heck is going on? I had to go back through my notes to even chronicle where we were at this point in time. Like the setup of this mystery second sanction he has to do and the way we're kind of tracking different leads and we have different characters popping up, like, you know, Jack uh, Cassidy's Miles shows up and kind of takes over the movie for a while. A lot of things are very ambiguous. And then suddenly it transforms into a mountain climbing movie that is pretty straightforward mountain climbing adventure. And I kind of feel like the overly convoluted spy element of the movie is just, I don't even know if Clint cared about it. He said like he was really focused on the mountain climbing footage because to me that just kind of, got diluted to the point where I just kind of lost track of even what was going on in the plot. And it didn't, it didn't grab me a lot. I was waiting to kind of be carried along the way I am in so many other Eastwood movies, which have a little more of a confident sort of understanding of story structure. This one just to me was a little muddy, but it had like lots of stuff I could pick out and enjoy throughout. The the other thing that, that grabbed me from that was that now you've come to mention it, um, you know, Clint Eastwood doing a climbing movie. Well, it, it, he'd done that before in Where Eagles Dare. You know, there's a there's a lot of that going on. It's snowing. Yep. It's Eastwood in the snow, and and maybe that was another possible reason for the success of of the box office. People going, well, you know, this is Clint going up a mountain and 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 killing people. Well, that's not so bad. You know, we can do this. Um, but 
Yeah, there there are a couple of characters. I'm not entirely certain that the Jack Cassidy character worked terribly well. Um, I if if he'd have been done slightly differently, I think that's the, this is the guy I was referring to earlier. That's in every episode of. He seems to be in every episode of Columbo. I don't know whether that's the case. He probably isn't, but he—I imagine he's done his fair share of Columbo. Uh, but that particular character is 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 quite off-putting, um, if if anything. And um, personally, I think that there should have been another character to replace him that maybe would have been slightly more in keeping with with Clint's type of character. So there could definitely be uh, a, a proper uh, one again, man-on-man type of thing a between power the struggle. two, you know? Yeah. A power struggle, absolutely. There didn't seem to be a power struggle there, you know? Um, in fact, the dog was probably better than <laughs> the Jack was in his portrayal of both characters, I suspect. But that, that I think that's possibly where... For me, that I could have done with a with a with a, a feistier character that 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 wasn't that character. It's it's something I was going to bring up in the dislike section. And I probably will go back to it, but that entire character is has had, from what I've read has a completely different story or is completely different from what's in the book. So that right. is a choice they've made. That choice um, for him to have these let's call them eccentricities, and for his dog to be named that way. Um, I. I don't like the film for making that choice. I'm not, that's not a broad dislike of the film just for that choice, but it does feel very spiteful. Yes. Well, you also have like Clint adopting like kind of a stereotypical kind of gay man's voice when he's playing like the delivery uh, man with the, with the first sanction where sure. I was like, yeah, okay. And like, the thing is, it's like, I don't like to get on the kind of the high horse because like I'm sitting in 2023. How dare they do this in 1975? No. Attitudes were completely different. This was not an uncommon thing to see in movies. I was more fascinated by the sheer amount of elements in this movie that piled up where you're like, wow, that's aged badly. (laughs) And it was like, normally you get one or two, but this was like, how many targets can they hit? (laughs) Yeah, there's a there's another element that maybe we'll get into in a little bit, but I I suppose I should chuck in my two cents on the Iger sanction. Uh, I was um, baffled, truly baffled by this film because there are moments where I thought it was actually doing something quite interesting. You know, it, it was taking some weird swings. You talk mm. you talk about like uh, C two, which is the sort of spy organization that is in this, and and it's run by a guy called Dragon, and Dragon is an albino guy who's who has to stay inside because sunlight will damage him and give him you know, make him in pain. So they've designed this elaborate lair for him to be in. The color is great. It's very vibrant, very interesting. Like it's a strange choice they made. They wanted to sort of you know ape on the Bond films a little bit with that. Absolutely fine. Very cool. Lots of moments like that. Lots of weird eccentricities like, you know, seeing Dr. Hemlock. What a great name for your lead, by the way. Dr. Hemlock, you know, I, I, it was a bit uncomfortable, perhaps, the flirting with the student. But like it, it was in a tongue in cheek 70s way. I'm not going to you know, hit the film for that. Like, but that was interesting. It was Indiana Jones before Indiana Jones existed. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's kind of cool. And I like that sort of stuff. But for me, when it actually got to Iger, the film just... I am going to use this pun once and, and John can roll his eyes. <laughs> Scott, it, you've been using puns over and over again. I mean, <laughs> it fell off a cliff. 
One more won't. Oh, oh I see. Off a cliff. Okay. Yeah. It plummeted in free fall. It did. It did. It did. It did. <laughs> and so I, I just, I don't know what they were. I mean, we'll get to tone. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But it, it's interesting. Like it, it was doing some interesting stuff and trying to be a sort of quirky spy film for a little while. But as soon as it got to the actual second sanction, the Iger sanction, the tit- the titular sanction, <laughs> it, it, it was not interested in being a spy film anymore. It just wanted to be sort of a, a, a demo reel for shooting on a mountain, which is absolutely fine. But as Cam said, just shoot that film. They are, they are two different movies, really, aren't they? You've got the first part, which is the establishing the characters thing. So uh, Hemlock gets the the uh, the whole thing from from um, uh, from Dragon. It's also very. Now I think about it, uh, I had I had made a note in my notes regarding it, but it's very Thomas Crown in the respect that you know he is really, 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 really more interested in his art collection than anything else. To, to be honest. Um, that was a great touch. Yeah, there was that. There was that going on, which I thought was quite nice. And then you know the the um, uh, Jemima, you know, when he meets Jemima on the plane and all that sort of interaction. Okay, well that's 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 that. And then that moves on to something else. And then by the time they get to actually doing going up the mountain, it's then become a different film. And I, you struggle then to 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 maybe look for the benefits of this second part of the picture um as opposed to the you know slapsticky quite funny bits th- lines that he was throwing in left right and center in the early part of the movie you know yeah uh, who's the who's the guy who is the um uh who's the guy who's the dude a pope Gregory right? Walcott. Yeah. uh so the interaction between eastwood and the uh, hemlock and pope it's quite entertaining and yet you know by the time the second part of the picture comes around that's not doesn't really work as much so i think there's a whole bunch of bits to to, to look at but i wonder if it, at, at some point it was even uh, you know a, a draft of one picture and, and a part of a draft of another and they've gone Do you know this might actually if we put a mountain shot in the middle of this uh and we just you know we we go pan and scan from one side of the screen to the other people may not know we can then set the whole thing there so we've called the the thing the Iger sanction we may as well go up it and this might be the appropriate moment so i wonder if it was just a simple case of that well it could just be also extending that analogy a little bit there it could have just been frankensteining two versions of the script together there was a a, mm. a a very wacky tonal film at one point and then there was a very gritty assassination thriller um, yep. And they just went, oh, there you go. That's your script. Off you go and yep. go and shoot it, which is, you know, happens, happened before. It's not a problem. It's just, uh, it, it, it is of detriment to your film. Well, like, if this book is like a more comedic take or kind of like just a, a little bit of a satire of James Bond and Ian Fleming's writing, then like a character like Jemima Brown or Dragon makes like a lot of sense. Yeah. Like if you're trying to kind of poke fun at kind of the world of Bond. Um but like when I get to yeah that back half of the movie with the the mountain climbing like there's like kind of drama going on with one of the climbers' wives and Clint Eastwood kind of having earnest talks with some of the other cli- you know with one of the other climbers on the mountain and I'm like this doesn't fit with kind of like spoofing James Bond like imagine if you're watching For Your Eyes Only which hey this one beat James Bond mountain climbing by a few years um, yeah. but like imagine if like For Your Eyes Only 
the last like 40 minutes of the movie was just Roger Moore climbing that mountain. You know, you'd be like, huh, this is a very different energy than uh, what I was seeing. Is he there yet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going more for like, you know, you had the first, I don't know, first two acts of Moonraker and then the final act was Casino Royale. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the 2006 version, I should specify, not not oh, the 60s yeah, version. Yeah. That, that would actually track very well, I think, if you did those two together. Um, but okay, let's let's talk about things we did like. Because there are things I liked about this film. Mm-hmm. But John, let's go to you. Something you want to talk about, something you really liked about the Iger Sanction. Um, there are... But what I say, you know, it, I, it's not it, it, It's not to the point where I I, I can I can see it has flaws. Uh, I, I'm not looking at it from a 2023 perspective because I'm a 51-year-old man. Hmm. So I am looking at it from a 51-year-old man's perspective. And this movie was made just a few years after I was born. So I can see it in a slightly different light. Um, there are a, a number of lovely uh, uh, cinematography moments. I must say, um, Frank Stanley is the is the uh, the um, the director of photography on this, and does create some gorgeous shots. They really are some lovely moments. Even uh, uh, and the the dragon sequences or the shots are not my favourite, but there are moments where there's flare. Obviously, you're getting flare from the lights and from the heat and from various other bits because he needs to be kept in a controlled environment. Um, but there are moments there that really do work very well, and the 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 design of the, of that set, um, you get some lovely shots there. And of course, you're you're expecting to get um, elaborate shots of the mountain and the views and the this and the that. And there's a lovely section just leading up to that. If you remember when they make that transition from the end of the first part of the script to the second part of the script, where they then open up onto the Eiger itself and it's a helicopter shot over the top of the ridge. And there it is. It's glorious. It's really very, very nice indeed. So there are a number of lovely moments. The music, I, I will top on the music again because I think John, this is a lovely score mm-hmm. uh, by John Williams. It really is. He, it doesn't matter what he does, um, uh, whatever project he's given, you automatically assume, as as many will do of a certain generation, because they've only they may have only grown up with uh, with um, uh, John Williams as either uh, doing that type of adventure march, i.e. Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, or the Harry Potter pictures, or Jaws, you know, whereas uh, he's got such a huge escape. In fact, conducted the audience, uh, the uh, orchestra for Fiddler on the Roof, uh, as I remember uh, for the film version. But there's some lovely stuff on here. And, of course, there's a, there's a, there's a rock connection. I'm a big fan of rock music in a band myself. And uh, uh, Toto's Jeff Picaro, uh, the uh, the late great drummer with Toto is playing percussion on this but with the Hollywood Symphony Orchestra, so oh, wow. it's a really really super score. I, and I do have a copy of it. I must admit, I do play it from time to time, primarily because of its melodic gorgeousness. Uh, it does sweep about, and there's a later section where you can really. Um, what did he obviously he he created he created the shark in music for jaws and you don't see the thing for nearly an hour but you know it's there because of the eeriness of the music and similarly with the mountain sequences the higher we go in this climb the pitch of the music changes and it's slightly different and there's a feel of he's he's created a a a eerie breeze uh, running through it which is actually done 
for real with instruments. Very, very clever indeed. So uh, as per usual, hats off to, to John Williams for, for ticking a, a number of boxes on this. So it's got a lot to go for. I must admit there's a, there's a, um, uh, a couple of uh, um, interesting costume moments as well, but, uh, but uh, the less said about that, the better probably, yeah. but they would be, they would be my two highlights. Certainly. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, cinematography. One of the things that jumped out to me is a shot, about midway through the film where where um clint is training for oh. climbing the mountain and he's he's like pushing himself up in between two bits of rock and i believe it either pans in or pans out probably from a helicopter shot and just mm-hmm. a large sort of sweep in or sweep away i can't remember which way it goes but it's just like wow this was they they they, just, they could have done the easy route just having him as a flat shot just climbing but they no, they went no i'm going to go a step further we're going to get a helicopter yeah. and we're going to take a long elaborate look or come away from him just climbing because it's clint doing the stunt you want to highlight he's there and then highlight the spectacle of the rock he's climbing upon yeah that's it that the whole point of of uh, of making sure the audience knows you you know that's the star don't you we, we, we let's get in nice and tight on clint let's let him finish that line and then let's come right the way back and keep going keep going until you're you know two and a half thousand feet away or however far you are and then you realize looking down at the ground that's a helicopter that's got downdraft there that's actually a, a helicopter with a with a camera position there that's a very very clever shot um and I think that's there are when you have I mean they're they're filming in in uh, you know Monument Valley the very place uh, where John Ford made all of those incredible pictures back in his day and he he used to call it you know his his playground the place where he filmed all of those amazing stuff and to be able to still go back many years later and still recreate those type of images and get those type of shots it's a um, it's a it's a tick in the box for that location, which just keeps giving clearly on 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 every single occasion when when anybody's been there. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. It's interesting you should uh, also mention going back to it because one thing that Cam and I noticed whilst watching this film is uh, just a few months ago we were stood in Clint Eastwood's footsteps without even knowing it because uh-huh. we, as you know, most listeners know, we go to Las Vegas every year. And part of that trip is we tend to do a day trip somewhere. So we've gone to the Grand Canyon before in the past. This year, we chose to go to Zion National Park. That's right. And that is where they shot all of the training sequences, apart from the stuff in the Utah desert. All the green lush moments, basically. All of that. Cam and I have walked those hikes, those paths. We, We parked in that car park that Clint parked upon. Even that sort of like holiday camp. That he's staying at with you know with buns and and the whole team buns yes. um is is basically the visitor center now in, in right. and we walked okay. around it and we didn't even know cool. a crazy small coincidence there and uh scott was chasing me around like clint chasing george no and did you stand on top of the cliff and take your shirt off and him just run up the side of the mountain <laughs> in a really exciting moment i know it's it all come flooding back now isn't it <laughs> he actually ran the opposite direction it didn't have the desired effect <laughs> life imitating art or vicely versely yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how many hikes i've been on where you need inspiration every once in a while and clearly you know george was was delivering some form of inspiration because she wasn't delivering any any uh there was no conversation going on was there she she brought something yeah she brought something yeah brought something to the table certainly mm. yeah, yeah quite right uh cam what about you something you liked 
So, I mean, just, you know, John was talking about just like the visuals of the movie, like the cinematography is spectacular. And I really think that is my prime takeaway from the movie. So I'm not going to make that my like because we talked about it. But yes, it's like the mountain climbing vistas, just a lot of the visuals throughout the movie really do stand out. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, one thing that really clicked, and I think this movie has a bit of an issue with like character chemistry, not so much actors, because like Clint is very good at assembling like a, a... dependable team but like in terms of like the characters i didn't feel a lot between say like uh you know hemlock and jemima uh for example but i thought that the combination of clint eastwood and george kennedy was really effective and they'd worked together on uh thunderbolt and lightfoot the year Mm -hmm. before and to me like these are just two old pros who just know how to make this sort of relationship work. And just watching the two of them sit on the top of that mountain, just bantering, I'm like, give me a whole movie of this. Like, the hangout factor of the Iger Sanction kind of uh, ebbs and wanes depending on which characters are on screen. But when it's those two, give me that whole movie. And honestly, like George Kennedy, this guy is just like... He may not be a movie star the way we think of movie stars... But, like, watch scenes where he's just watching the climbers through a telescope. He's making that interesting and magnetic. Just watching him react. That is, in my eyes, a star, even if he wasn't, you know, considered, like, the big bankable Hollywood icon. He's a a proper, really serious character actor. There's no doubt about that. And he's always thrown in, in in a number of pictures, primarily because he's a solid down-to-earth sort of character that people can relate to, you know? Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what it is. He's playing the chief of police. He's playing some hood. He's playing a bartender. It doesn't, makes no difference. You see him on screen. He delivers that line, and he does what he does, and people go, yeah, okay, I can see that. That could be me. You know, he's actually doing what I'm doing. Um, um, later audiences, of course, will 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 know him from the Naked Gun pictures and being Leslie Nielsen's sidekick in that, you know? And again, that then sounds off a other, because he's a very, very funny character actor. You know, he really does know a good line when he sees, and and visually, you know, he, he doesn't have to say anything. He can, as you're saying, looking through that, through that, uh, the, the binoculars there and, and, and looking at what's going on and his face is doing everything. You don't need lines, you know, he's, really an excellent actor i've I've always liked what stuff that he's in uh, a picture that i covered not too long ago the delta force mm, he's yeah. in there playing playing a priest and a, and a very very powerful performance there as well so he, he's not uh certainly casting him in this picture i think was uh was a was a major tick in the box for the production absolutely and I think, like, the movie kind of drops the ball a little bit with, like, the reveal of him being the target at the end. Like, yeah. it didn't have the dramatic punch you kind of hoped for. But you look at the gravitas with which George Kennedy then talks about, you know, how uh, George is his daughter and was hooked on drugs. I'm like, this guy is selling something that, like, the movie's not giving him a lot. <laughs> the like, movie hasn't told us, but he is. Yeah. yeah. The, the narrative is not on his side. Like, the screenplay is not quite there. But yeah. he's like, I don't care. I have to sell this moment, and I'm going to do my best. Yeah. Now it's uh, it's it's certainly something that that um, that I, I I'm really interested to see if it, if cast and if somebody else had been cast in that in that role, would it have done the job that it had done? We talked at the top of this about Paul Newman very possibly being Hemlock. 
and that would be a real struggle for me. I don't think that that would have worked in that characterization or the or the the script as we know it. You know, uh, the one that he he turned turned down on. But I don't think that that would have happened. And I really can't see anybody else in this role than George Kennedy. Um, it's something that he's managed to do over over a number of years. Do it really really well. And as you say yourself, the the the, the movie just didn't tell us visually what he then had to tell us in two parts of two pages of dialogue you know so uh we we were kind of relying on him towards the end to uh to push the boat out and give us a give us a hand mm-hmm. it takes a real talent for an actor to sell you on something that he can't see yes absolutely yeah uh yeah he's he's looking at a mountain that no one's on and he doesn't care because he's not actually that character but he's selling you yeah. what's in the other end of those binoculars and that's a yep, that's a skill absolutely. and i mean in terms of my like i we've covered them mostly you know from cinematography to score to you know the actually the, the sort of camaraderie between the two leads as well was the other thing i had but i do just want to throw in a tip of the hat to kind of partially the reason that you know i want to look at this film is i heard that Clint did a lot of stunts himself, and that shows in the film. It has a greatness, especially when he's climbing the Eiger at the end. You know that's him going up the mountain, and mm-hmm. you don't see that anymore. And I just, I kind of miss that element when it comes to filmmaking. The sort of practical, hands-on. I, I know that films still get made that way, but something, there's just something tangible about this film, especially when he's climbing the mountain, and you just. I almost can feel the dirt in his hands as he's lifting himself up. And and I mm-hmm. appreciate that because it brings me a little closer to the actual story. The the, the thing to remember here, uh, and um, this is again where, you know, the 1975-2023 thing comes into play, is that this movie, uh, and if you've ever seen Vertical Limit, there's a good example of a, of a mountain climbing movie. Well, which has had the, the the kitchen sink thrown at it, and you've got a, a director on the helm that came out of fresh from directing a Bond movie and was all of a sudden the greatest thing since sliced bread. And what what it did visually was it ticked no end of boxes. And yeah, they filmed it in New Zealand, but not all of it. You know, a great deal mm-hmm. of it was filmed on a green screen somewhere else. What you see here on the Iger sanction is actual crew and actors up mountains. And that moment in the picture where he is then told by George Kennedy to cut the line, right? He's 4,000 feet up. There's important things to, to bear in mind that he's not doing this because this is the thing they're going to sell in the trailer or this is the thing that the actor is going to do when he's doing the press junket. Um, you know, there, there was no... Um, there was no YouTube premiere of... Um, him being cu- cutting that rope and falling, um, you know, 65 feet and then the other rope kicking in. That was never a thing. And yet that's exactly what he does. He is for- he's suspended by a, by a series of ropes 4,000 feet above the surface and is being given a cue by an actor because he's directing, but he's also <laughs> in the shot. So he's directing it and he's given George Kennedy the cue to go cut your rope. And he's physically cut it. He then falls, and falling sixty feet is bad enough when you're not suspended four thousand feet above the ground and not attached by a number of ropes. Because when what happens is he will have a safety harness on underneath that, with selection of carabiners hooked. So he's 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 in position, 
and it's roped in such a way, giving the impression that that's the rope that's kicked in. But that's one hell of a jolt when you get to that point. Yeah, Clint's in fair fettle. I don't know what how, I don't know how old he would have been in 1975, um, late 30s, maybe something like that, maybe early 40s. I think um, he was born in 1930. Right. Okay. So we're not far away. So he's he's still in very a very good physical specimen. By but obviously, but you drop somebody, and by the time they get to that point at the at the lowest point, he is possibly twice his natural body weight, and traveling much faster than he was when he left. You know, so the whole bunch of things. His body goes through a whole bunch of stuff, and that's him doing that. We say this nowadays, like it's you know, the weirdest thing, but doing it for real he's mm. actually there in camera doing that that can be recreated nowadays on a green screen you put the ropes in afterwards you take the ropes out you don't need them you know he can just put an arm up and you'll put a cliff face in and he grabs hold of it so it is easy to do nowadays but back then much more complicated and yeah kudos absolutely to to clint for doing it he's got reasons for doing it but nevertheless um the I would imagine that when you'd finish filming that, he would just think, I've got nothing left. I've got to have, you know, like six months off a year to go and recharge my batteries. I don't know what his next project was after that, but uh, I would imagine he took a little while to reconsider it before uh, before doing anything else because that's a very physical role, absolutely. And it's it's interesting just, you know, this is an audio podcast. A lot of people listening to this might not have actually sat down and watched the Iger Sanction yet. I would urge you to take a minute. This The clip of this scene that, that John was talking about here, uh, neither of us did it justice, but it is on YouTube. You can find that exact clip right now. If you're not going to watch the film, go and watch that moment because that is a man giving his life over to some, you know, very, very well educated, very well practiced stuntmen and, you know, mountain climbers, but still he's putting his life on the line and that is a a big thing to do and anyone who's done any sort of mountaineering or any sort of stunts or anything to do with skydiving anything where you put your life on the line that is a big step to make and he yeah. did it and he led from the front when it comes to that and so that's where i want to tip my hat okay so john you were saying you know did clint eastwood take a break after the Iger sanction no no he didn't he actually the very next year directed the outlaw josie wales <laughs> oh so yep no sleep for clint in fact, he'd have had a double header, wouldn't he? Because he had Outlaw Josie Wells. Then The Enforcer was the same year as well. So they'd have been filmed back to back. Uh-huh. And The Gauntlet the following year. And then he's just continually worked up until about 2004, I think, before deciding, I think I'll just take 10 minutes. Yeah. The, the thing is, it, 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 it's a physicality. It takes it out of you. Now, the physical stress and strain, if it affects the mental stress and strain as well, and very clearly, looking at his workload over the next uh, 18 months, two years, means that this is still functioning very normally. And he's just looking ahead and accepting jobs. And they're very different from the ones that he's done before. And he will direct them. Um, and uh, he will be in a situation where he's working many, many different units and being the head of all of this sort of stuff. Uh, but none of it will involve you know, being physically dropped from, from such a height with such force. But, uh, that's, that's the nature of it. You know, film stars, you had to be in a, in a, you had to be very physical and be in a position to ride those punches, uh, before accepting a job. And that would have been a major part of this is because the huge amount of it set up, up this mountain. So hats off to Clint for that. Most definitely. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. 
Attention spy hards, die hards. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a hidden moon base, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Scott, for this month's edition of The Debrief, we are going to take a look at the new John Wick spin-off series, The Continental, which is now streaming. We have watched all three episodes, and we are locked and loaded and ready to fire out our thoughts. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyheart. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. Well, let's pivot on over to things we didn't like myths so things you wanted to bring up john i'm going to throw to you something if you haven't mentioned already something you didn't like about the film you want to just talk about um not necessarily didn't like uh, because as i say I'm, I'm looking at it from a slightly different perspective but um i think it is safe to say that the Miles' character I could probably have done without. Um, I, I, I don't think... I think the character's been shoehorned in, if I'm looking at it. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if Jack Kennedy hasn't said, do you know, I, I don't even think the character would have been written that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the first time I've heard that approach from, from Jack Kennedy, which he's, which he's used in the past. And I suspect that um, that... I, I keep making this Columbo reference, and I'm terribly sorry to do so. But he he was in a, he was in three episodes of Columbo. I've just double checked, <laughs> and one of the one of them was very clearly this type of character. So it's it's okay. a it's a, a a a character that he is familiar with, and is able to sort of push the boundary a bit in various directions depending on what's required of him. And I just think that maybe it could have been a slightly better character. I'm not entirely happy with with this. You know this guy being, and because he's another hitman, mm-hmm. right? And you go, okay, well, that's a very interesting approach. And surely, um, you know, I know it's nineteen seventy-five, so it might have been very difficult to spot the hitman in the group, particularly if one of them was was playing it in in, in this type of manner. Having said that, you know, um, we don't see anything to suggest that he's as good as. Um, as Clint, you know, and, and to put them on the same sort of, um, to put them on the same sort of pedestal, I find difficult. Um, but you know, uh, was there anything else that really, uh, we, it was a sort of, um, uh, quantum of solace ending. I can see where, um, where, uh, our Mr. Forster, the director probably got an idea for that with, uh, with him being hung out to dry there in the desert. That was quite nice. Yeah. Um, I can actually but... add to that a little bit there. Just in, it actually combines both of your two sort of nitpicks there really, because I was just checking in the book that, that, uh, that character is, I should say that character, the miles and Malo character played by Jack Cassidy is in the book. Right. And the dog is in the book. Right. But in the film, his dog is taken back by Clint Eastwood, sort of saved. In the in the book, uh, the dog and him are left to fend for themselves, and he is found having eaten the dog. 
Oh, oh wow! Yes. So there's like a harder edge to where Ooh, the yeah. story goes. Yeah, oh, that and I think that would probably play more into what they wanted to do with the sort of serious side of this film. Yeah, but they 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 just can't balance the tone, unfortunately. And I I don't I can't speak to what the characterization was like in the book of that character, so I don't I don't know on that. No, uh, uh, but I would I would suspect that probably you know J- Jack Cassidy has has suggested why don't I play it like this sure. mm. uh, for them to go, well, yeah, you know, like a sort of comedic edge thing that might work. And, and as I say, he has done it before, but you're bang on though. Like you, you should have seen a moment, an element of sort of danger from him. Like something it yeah. proved his worth as uh, maybe not on the level of Clint Eastwood's, you know, Dr. Hemlock, but close to, he should have maybe killed, you know, uh, George or, or something like that. Like you give it some stakes. Exactly. Cause the, the only the only character that you see just briefly for a moment that could be a similar physical character is uh, is Miles' bodyguard, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And um and and that so there's a physicality thing there, but apart from that, there's certainly not you know it's, there's no meeting of minds. I wouldn't have thought. I don't think as as far as that's concerned. And the only danger that's really exuded by the Cassidy, uh, you know, the the Miles character. Is that like he hires George to yeah. stick a syringe into Hemlock, and so like that's the only real like act of violence you see coming. But it's also through someone else. He's just getting someone else to do the work for him, and he's got the bodyguard as well. So it's like precisely get somebody to do it. Yeah, I, I guess I never bought that. Like, you know, the Hemlock character had served in Vietnam with this individual. <laughs> like, it didn't seem like they had much of a relationship, yeah. and. You never got like a physical threat. It felt like they'd put on kind of this gay stereotype of the character to make him seem weird next to ultra masculine Clint. Like that's kind of like all you could define the character with. Because there was certainly no vulnerability there, was there? I mean, there was no, no. there was none of that. It was very there was they were definitely going for an odd feel, yeah. Uh, as opposed to you know, if they were going to portray a gay character, fine, okay. But that was never sold as that, and there was certainly nothing to suggest that back in the seventies he was being, uh, you know, victimized for this or anything of that nature. So there was no play on that whatsoever. It was just this bizarre character that suddenly turned up and was a bit weird. And the strength of his weirdness, all of a sudden, you you realize that he's he's using people is what he's doing. But it's not. Um, uh, it didn't work. I don't think it worked. And I, and I think Clint, or, or probably from a uh from a casting you know we 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 look at this in uh in retrospect but from a casting perspective i think there probably could have been a better a better character there and the story would have been better for it i think yeah i mean it kind of falls back on kind of the winton kid thing right where it's like winton kid in diamonds are forever what makes them stand out well it's their sexual orientation in contrast to bond but it's more like movies of that era like isn't that weird and that's kind of what they just fall on here but it can be done around the same time better you look at edward fox in the day of the jackal now he's not mm, necessarily yeah um, yes. anyway particular it's not really ever specified but he does pick up a man in the film and uh, to kill him and to take his flat and to use his possessions but yes there's an implication there but it is never at, like detriment to the character it's never meant to infer that he is weaker or anything like that no. and this film really is taking that punch it's also not the definition of the character no exactly yeah he's not defined by it exactly yeah but Cam, over to you, sir. Something you wanted to take up with this film. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's obviously like we're talking about, you know, the handling of like a gay character. There's a lot of issues like that that kind of run through the movie. Um, 
the George character is indigenous and uh, Clint Eastwood basically follows her around saying insulting things about indigenous people. Not great. The Jemima character, just the name alone has not aged well for uh, obvious reasons. But like just the handling of that character is not done particularly well. I would have liked just like a more dynamic individual. Like Clint often would do that in his movies where he'd cast kind of like a leading, you know, actress next to him who wasn't going to take away from his star power. And I got a bit of that here. So it's like, in terms of these dated elements, it's the sort of thing where I can go, okay, this is a movie made in 1975. I'm more just like surprised at the sheer car crash of how many of them pile up in this film. But really for me, like kind of that stuff aside, it's the pace. I will go through any movie if it's paced really well. Like if it moves it like a relative clip, and it can be, you know, kind of like a hard-boiled, kind of like slow burn thing. But like, if you keep that pace, that momentum to the movie going, I'm on board. This one, to me, that's where it would lose me. Where it just didn't feel like it had any sort of, any sort of like um, desperation or propulsion to kind of the espionage story. And it was a lot of just like, well, guys, we're just hanging out, waiting for something to happen. And I thought that was kind of detrimental to watching this, you know, hour and 30 minute movie. There was a lot of... Is that all it was? Or, sorry, yeah. not an hour 30, 130 yeah. minutes. I was going to say, yeah, what, what film were you watching? Yeah, yeah no yeah. kidding. Mine was much longer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because you look at things like the pace, and we've mentioned that once you get to the Yiger itself, the titular mountain, it does kind of drop off. And that's, mm. that, that's fair because you could also like say that's him going on the mission and it could change a tone. You look at, for instance, Zero Dark Thirty, that film is a completely different film in the last 30 minutes because they actually go on the mission and it's it's basically an action, a 30-minute long action sequence and it's fantastic. Mm. A, a, a very different vibe to the rest of the film. That, could, that not necessarily isn't a problem, but it is a problem in this film because the pace just disappears. You get to yeah. the sort of chalet next to the Eiger and it's it's like a carry-on film talking about people sleeping with other people's wives and you know meetings outside and having a roll around in the grass with pope and you just think like i don't care about any of this stuff i don't know even know who the villain is really at this point yeah you, you have yeah. no idea who to focus your energy on which is built into the story at some point but then they just sort of offhand sort of wave it away which i think will bring me to my big dislike Apart from tone, but we've spoken about tone so much. The tone of this film was all over the place. Um, but the problem I had ultimately is the twist. Because, you know, you, you think of other films that have big twists at the end. No Way Out is the one I go back to quite a lot in my head. That earns its twist. It is a bit twisty, but you know, there are signposts along the way. You see him drinking Stolichnaya. It's built into it. And then you go, oh, he's a Russian sleeper agent. Wow, that's that's actually quite a cool twist. This gives you no signpost that George Kennedy is the man because he's meant to have a limp and yet he's out running with Clint earlier in the film. <laughs> Can someone tell me what, how that works? That did yeah. so what is that about? It's done really well to mask that, hasn't yeah. it? I think it's the cold weather oh. makes him limp. Oh, I think. okay. Um, There's a storm coming in. Why my hips playing <laughs> oh. up? You know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, I, and that is, I think, detriment to the film. And I think, much like Firefox, eerily, that it could have been a bit better had they just sort of brought the two halves together. And if you had a good twist at the end that actually followed through, it could have been any of those guys climbing the mountain. I guess probably mm. the thing in the book is it's, it was never about the people on the mountain or something like that. Some sort of like 
trick in a book but a book can build pace a different way to a film and it doesn't this film doesn't pay off so you spend two hours and eight minutes or whatever this film is and at the end you go huh Mm. right and it has like the casino royale ending where except for the venice bit where they're sort of you know bond is convalescing after being beaten up by the chifra you know you've got clint eastwood convalescing after being beaten up by the eiger and almost as like you know oh Maybe he's going to do another mission. Who knows? And, mm-hmm. you, you know, John Williams plays you out. But you don't feel like you've accomplished something by that point because you've not had any of the loose ends tied up. You even go back to other things like, you know, the, the wife of the guy who was, you know, sleeping around with someone. That's never really particularly resolved. And also you never see her again despite the fact that her husband has died. Oh, that's true. Like, there's no like, oh, like, oh, there's no Clint like consoling her or anything like that. N- nothing. And so I just feel like, I think we sort of came up with the idea earlier on in this episode, but I think this is just two scripts that have been sort of bandaged together. Yeah, I, I think that's possibly the case. I, I think that, um, you know, you, you look at a bunch of stuff and the fact that, as Cam mentioned in his uh, opening blurb there, it, it, this picture had been hanging about for ages. The script had been hanging about for a long time. And the first version of that, and then somebody else had had a crack, and then we'd done this and that, and before too long, somebody had bought it, and then nobody wanted to be in it, and you know, a whole bunch of things. Before probably somebody going, for Christ's sake, will we just make this movie? Mm. You know, we've had it singing around for ages. Uh, let's do it, and then they finally get Eastwood on, on on board, and then all of a sudden things start picking up. But what doesn't change is the general concept of the film and i wouldn't be at all surprised if some of those scenes you were talking about uh that are you know um, rolling about in the in the in the uh, uh in the grass verge with uh, by the by the by the tram lines there with pope and all that sort of stuff probably written in the day before or that morning you know we need something to pad out this and i've had an idea why don't we do this and and then well, we'll film it you know just r- rushing bits and pieces through to get it done and it does feel a bit jarring in places, you know, from an entertainment value. And I I still look at it. I do try and let a great deal of stuff wash over me, sure. uh, uh, particularly when when you're looking at pictures like Eastwood. You know, he's he's done a few pictures up to this point. He's directing this. And you want to think, well, the, the guy knows what he's doing, you know, and he's going to get final say of this and that. And And nowadays we look at it and go, well, this was really quite poor and it's like two parts of the movie didn't he see that back then didn't he go storming into the editor's office go what the hell have you done with this you know what where's that scene that we filmed and why is this like a big jump cut to another movie at the end of it but clearly there were a number of different issues along the way and they've kind of had to put up the best version of of everything they can come up with and and uh it's not going to tick everybody's boxes but you know if you 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 can let it kind of wash over you let it sail on and you you do get a beginning a middle and an end and and what happens in in the middle is is kind of a bonus i suppose it wasn't quite what people were looking for but it does you know as a as an adventure picture it kind of works out no and as we pointed out there are things to like in this film you know, yeah, yeah, it's not without its its positives. I think we spent more time talking about things that we liked than things that we disliked. So Absolutely. I, that's that's yeah, a yeah, credit yeah. to the film in terms of like the balance. Is it over fifty percent good stuff? It's probably doing okay as a film. Yeah, yeah. What I like about Clint as a director is that he actually is very inconsistent, and that sometimes makes him more interesting. And that you know you go through his work. There's so many great movies. You know, you think of Unforgiven or Outlaw Josie Wales. I'm a big fan of Million Dollar Baby. There's a lot of movies in there that are great. 
But then there's like a lot of stuff mixed in there that's like not great. Absolute power, you know, true crime. Uh, there's a lot of movies. I don't know. I'm not going to speak for Breezy, but I don't know if Breezy's that great. Um, you know, there's a lot of movies in there that you go, oh, that's not one of his best ones. But it's because like it's this entire body of work and you understand his instincts for how he directs that I find his, you know, misfires just as interesting to talk about as his movies that are that are great. Like they all bring elements of him to the screen and they're just interesting to take apart. The the argument the, the to that of course is that he is so commanding in 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 a in a performance perspective and as a writer we know that he writes very well. We know he directs very well. And on the strength of that, his project should be chosen accordingly based on his experience and based on what he knows he can do. If he's able to take a project which on paper is utter car crash from start to finish and turn it into some sort of beautiful, fabulous looking movie that still delivers at the box office, then the man's a genius. Mm. But clearly on occasions, as we've noted there, he picks up something that he believes will work. You know, he thinks, yeah, we can do this. We can do something with this. I like to think that I can make this a really, really, really important movie that people will be talking about in 20, 30, 40 years time. And then for it to be just kind of okay. All right. It sold at the box office because Eastwood was in it. And with the greatest respect to the American cinema audience or the audience around the world, he could have, you know, read the yellow pages and probably would have broken even at the box office. So there was no harm in him making a profit with this movie. I, I think that was always going to be on the case. And, and uh, those initial characters, him, as we've mentioned already, him and George Kennedy together, fabulous, really, really solid. And uh, that kind of works very well. The visuals work very well. You've got lots of, you know, more plus points than negative points, certainly. But you'd like to think that from a director's point of view, and certainly somebody with his experience, you'd go, you can do better than this, Clint. There's got to be another project somewhere that you can tidy up and, and, and make it yours. So they're not all going to be big hits. But, um, you know, the box office proves that this was a success. Absolutely was a success. Right, before we head off to the knock list, John, do you have any final notes or things you want to mention about the Iger sanction? Um, anything else I want to mention? Well, I, I think that the um, uh, it's important to mention the climbing team. We, we've, we've touched on the stunts, but the climbing team are very important. Because it's the Iger, you know, and as everybody keeps mentioning in the picture, North Face, you know, the North Face of the Eiger, that's something that you don't want to do, really, if it's absolutely necessary. It's one of those things that climbers, um, you know, they, they look at it and they say, well, it, it, why climb it? Because it's there. You know, that whole thing about climbers doing it. And the North Face of the Eiger needs to be respected. The mountain itself has claimed many over the years. And as we see in the production of this film, it claims somebody else. Mm. And the climbing team themselves to be able to work in very difficult environments, I would have thought with the with the weather changing quite regularly, and uh, the further you go up, the more complicated that weather is going to be in smaller bursts for filming. Um, I would say hats off to them enormously, and 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 the fact that uh, they are not credited on the stunt team um that is is um is interesting they are they are credited separately in the film as climbing advisors mm. and riggers and i think that's important uh, yeah. we're accepting of the fact that they're not part of the stunt team but they are 
um, you know, doing a huge amount of the work that's up there, and the, and they should be uh, celebrated accordingly. So, if I may, I've just got a couple of names here uh, that um, I think make up the full team: Charles Scott, uh, Guy Nethert, uh, David Knowles, uh, Doug Haston, Bev Clark, and uh, Martin Boyan uh, mm. are some of the uh, key members of that team who uh, most certainly need their uh, the, credit where credit is due. Nice. No, I, they should have their flowers because I think ultimately the thing that we, much as maybe tonally didn't work with the rest of the film, you can't say that stuff up the mountain didn't look gorgeous and that's that's their, that's their, that's their craft there coming through. That's yes. them. That's all them. Uh, Cam, any sort of final notes for us? I had a couple of silly little things. Sure. Uh, I like that the you know microfilm at the start of the movie arrives in Bazooka Joe bubblegum. Uh, that I just kind of enjoyed after... I remember in high school, every day after uh, class, my friend and I would go and buy Bazooka Joe gum and chew it on the walk home. I, I, weird memory. But um, the other thing was, I'm curious about how you two felt about the British representation in this film with the two Brits who want to use the telescope that George Kennedy is using. <laughs> Oh. Well, a, a kind of standard, I would have thought. Um, uh, uh, did they do a lot? Of, do they do a lot of apologising? I think they they probably do a great deal of apologising. That's normally uh, normally the situation. But that that immediate look when he tells them no in that particular way that he tells them no, um, I think that's a fairly standard response. Yeah. Uh, na- nowadays, it might have been slightly colourful. Uh, as a, he'd have got some back, I would have thought. But um, yeah, I think that's a fairly standard British response. Well, in that case, <clears throat> never mind. Walk off and, and go and do it elsewhere. You know? I'm happy to see. I'm happy to see a miffed, a miffed Brit in a film, mm. uh, which is uh, that's a, that's some a, a vernacular that North Americans might not get. Miffed uh, means slightly annoyed. Uh, so yep. yeah, the tone in this film miffed me. <laughs> I was miffed by the tone. <laughs> the British review, yeah. if there ever was one. Um, Slightly miffed, says Spartan. <laughs> Four out of five stars. Slightly miffed. Um, the only thing I would sort of add is, I made a joke about it earlier, but Clint being sort of an art teacher, and art collector, is that the most unlikely job that if Clint Eastwood walked up to you in the street looking like the way he does and said, hi, I'm Clint Eastwood, I'm an art teacher, uh, would that be the most outrageous thing he'd come out with or would there be something else? Um, if he said, uh, I'm taking over from Monty Don on Gardner's World, that might have done it. That might have swung it a bit further. But... Um... You know, he's he's the sort of character that can get away with most things. And I think he kind of, um, you don't learn anything from him you know, as, a, as a teacher. No, no. Um, uh, um, obviously, the uh, the young lady who wants to improve her grades has an idea that she might be able to learn something from him, but clearly nothing curricular um in this instance um but he holds himself very well as uh, again i mentioned uh, the um the fashion to a point there but he wears that jacket and trousers thing very well yeah um i must say he's got the biggest shoulders i've ever seen i should ask pete brooker and find out what what uh, what the man's measurements are and whether he's ever had anything made in london because that's uh-huh. uh, that's possibly the case when he came over in uh, uh, in 68 for where eagles dare but um the, 
doesn't matter what that, that whenever he's wearing a suit of some shape or form it always fits him like a glove you know he does mm. wear suits terribly well um but uh, no we we don't seem to uh, learn a great deal from him but uh, that nothing at the moment would have surprised me i was i was uh, of course much later on down the line surprised that uh, uh, he wrote the score to mystic river did he write the score to it is that the one i'm thinking of i think that's right and then has continued continued to write uh, scores and incidental music for his own movies ever since and a very fine uh, very fine jazz pianist i've just got a vision of um a vision of clint doing sort of john carpenter synth keyboards uh-huh. Exactly. Yes, that's <laughs> right. right. Yeah. For the Iger sanction. Yeah. There we go. That... You'd love to be in a room with him, John Carpenter, and the Tangerine Dream sat round oh, chatting wow. about the scores they've done in the past, simply for keyboard purposes. What a but, weird uh, afternoon that would be. Oh dear. But yeah, nothing surprises me at all there with Clint. I think the man's—he's uh, very, very good. Well, okay, we're at our destination now. We've made it up the North Face. Let's talk about the Iger sanction. Is it making the knock list, John? The vote goes to you as you are our guest. Number one, what do you think? With with the greatest respect to everything that's... There's, there's, a, there's a great criteria as far as being on the knock list is concerned. And there is the briefest element of spying, and it happens fairly early on when, when you realise that um, uh, Dragon and various other powers that are involved in this and there's a spy network so you know there's a network the rest of it is just kind of an adventure picture and mm-hmm. uh, you know what's you know he's looking for somebody and you know that that individual needs to be found and will be found and of course the twist plays about with it slightly but does it really fall into the category of of being part of the, the movies that currently sit on the knock list i would say no if i'm perfectly honest i don't think it quite falls into that category i think it's got a couple of elements but it's not really a full-blown entry so it would be a no from me i think i think that's a, a very justified response it, it's interesting because I, one note i actually had didn't bring up is this film walks the line between a spy movie and an assassin film which isn't really a genre yes. but there are plenty of sort of hitman films if you will um and i think it's interesting because sometimes we do cover these sort of hitman films who work for shadowy organizations and do a little bit of espionage on the way and it's kind of hard to sort of delineate which is a spy and which isn't a spy film but i think mm. the conversations are still important to have but I would agree with you on sort of it, it lacks the spy credentials, yes, if you will. Okay, so that's one no. Cam, what do you think? Yeah, it's a no for me as well. It's just, to me, not uh, higher-level Clint uh, filmmaking here. Um, you know, it's just a movie that I think it's got too many issues. And I think when you kind of look at movies that bridge the gap between maybe like spy elements and Clint Eastwood adventure elements, where Eagles Dare? Where Eagles Dare is like the best case scenario. And that one did make the knock list. So can't argue with that. And I won't fight that tide. Uh, I'm going to go for a no as well uh, for all the aforementioned reasons. So I think on that note, three no's. And as such, the Iger sanction does not make the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. But John, sir, before we let you go, firstly, thank you for once again stepping on, stepping up onto the Spy Hearts piste, as it were. Um, no, it's 
fine. No, it's, I've enjoyed it enormously. It's our pleasure to have you as always, sir. But just, you know, firstly, where can people find you online to hear more about Behind the Stunts? Um, well, if uh, if anybody is uh, um, uh, following these guys on, on all of their social medias, I follow them on their social medias, follow me. Uh, I'm on there as well on the Twitter, uh, at Stunt Central on Twitter. Uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram as behind the stunts. TikTok's got a following now as well, you know. Uh, so if you are TikTok suggestible, um, that's uh, that's where you'll find me behind the stunts on TikTok as well. Uh, it's quite a nice little platform for that. So little short videos and bits of narration about action and stuff. So that's quite nice. And ultimately, if you're going to go the whole hog, then go for the YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash behind the stunts. You'll find me there. Uh, join the 10,000 happy customers who have done so. Uh, and uh, there's uh, lots more coming there as well. So podcast every wednesday wherever you get yours and a youtube show every friday well and just for people who will be checking you out for the first time maybe what's a good episode or a good podcast to go and check out as like a first time listen for our listeners ah well we've uh we've touched on it a couple of times in this uh in connection with uh uh, the indiana jones connection so uh, one that is particularly um uh, thought of and and there's lots of comments on there is the raiders of the lost ark episode uh where not only we look at the uh, the action directing and the action arranging of uh, peter diamond was the stunt coordinator on it so there's some great stuff there but there's also an interview with terry leonard who of course did the uh, horse riding the transfer from the horse to the truck and then ultimately dragging under the truck and going back into the vehicle itself uh, um, paying homage to Yakima Canut in the stagecoach, that classic uh, uh, gag which happened in 1939 and, and Terry had had a hankering to do. But there's a fabulous story that he tells me about how all of that happened and it starts with John Melius. So there's a lovely story mm. that he tells you all about that, some great stuff uh, and some lovely bits about the the gags on the picture and uh, and the identifying those people involved and how they started so go and check that one out that's a good one we'll put that in the show notes below as well folks so if that's your first episode let us know how you get on with it and make sure you follow john wherever he is social mediaing but john i want to thank you once again for taking the time to climb Iger with us gentlemen a pleasure thank you very much indeed and i'll uh, brush the dust off my carabiners and if you need me in future i'm just a petong's fire away can't get better than that love it <laughs> Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about the Iger sanction. We've been uh, tracking this one for a while. We know you wanted us to talk about it, so we're glad we finally ticked this one off. Didn't make the knock list, but uh, Clint still has a few more opportunities to get on the list. I think maybe like one more, but he already made it. Where Eagles Dare made the list, so I don't feel bad for Clint at this point. I don't know. In the Line of Fire has quite the following. You never know. Oh, for sure. I think that's the only one left, right? So that's maybe his last chance to get a second one on? I think he does have one more, actually. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think there is, so I think there might be two together, but uh, wait and see when it comes to that, folks. But uh, speaking of coming up, Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What have we got coming up on the show next week? We are changing the energy up big time. We are going to tackle a very recent movie, a movie that we also know that will kind of vanish into the ether uh, very, very quickly, but we feel it is our duty to give you a review of the fifth 
Spy Kids film, Spy Kids Armageddon, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, we heard you folks. We did the first four episodes on on Spy Kids, and we know you wanted more. We know you wanted a roundtable on Spy Kids and just bonus episodes, as many interviews as we could get. More Spy Kids, the better, as far as you're concerned. But, you know, to be serious, we didn't expect there to be a fifth Spy Kids film when we were doing the movies. They kind of announced it midway when we were reviewing them. Um, and so, you know, it's just come out on Netflix. We figure now is the best time to be talking about it. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we take a look at the latest Spy Kids adventure. Is it as floopy as the predecessors? We will find out as we take a look at Spy Kids Armageddon. And uh, don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But... Until next week, folks, I better grab my trench coat. Wouldn't want anyone to spot me.